You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's bow together and pray before we begin. Father, we pray that as we turn to your word that we may find in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ encouragement for our hearts, words that might reprove the skeptic and might encourage the believer, that you would be honored and glorified through our study and our meditation upon these things today. And we pray that you would be sanctifying us by your truth continually as we are exposed to your word and as we look at it and study it. Be glorified now in the hearts of your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, happy Resurrection Day. It is Resurrection Day. This is the day, of course, every day we can boldly proclaim that, we can boldly proclaim with confidence and with assurance that Jesus Christ is alive, that He has risen from the dead, that three days after His suffering, He showed Himself alive to witnesses chosen beforehand with many convincing proofs. And He lives and He ever lives to make intercession for all who will come to God through Him by faith. That is the bold proclamation of the Christian gospel. If Christ is risen, then that is all that matters. If Christ is not risen, then nothing matters. We are in the world of Ecclesiastes. It is all meaningless, it is all empty, and you were all hoping that I would not mention Ecclesiastes on Resurrection Sunday. But if Christ is not risen, that is the world in which we live. It truly is nothing that matters, nothing in this world. There is no truth, there is no morality, there is no standard by which anybody will be judged, there is no future for anybody. We are all just worm food, and we come into this world, and we go into the dirt, and we're eaten by worms, and that's it. There's a lot that hinges on the truthfulness of the resurrection. But as Christians, we can say with absolute confidence, for I have never doubted on the testimony of history, or the testimony of Scripture, or the testimony of those who saw Him alive after three days, I have never doubted from the moment of my salvation until this day, Not one bit, not for one moment, not one atom of my being has doubted the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We say this with absolute confidence. We celebrate this every day, and certainly every Lord's Day when we gather together here. We gather to worship on Sunday because that is the day upon which the Lord Jesus Christ rose, and He set that day aside by His very resurrection as the day that His people, whose salvation was secured in that resurrection, would gather together and to worship Him and to celebrate that fact. He is risen. The tomb was empty. The tomb is empty, and He is alive today. Now, connected with His resurrection is the crucifixion of Christ. These two things go together. They have to go together. They are connected in the plan and purpose of God. They are connected not only in God's plan, but also in history and how they they have unfolded before us. It was impossible that that the grave should hold the Lord Jesus Christ. So the crucifixion and the resurrection must and do go together. You obviously can't have one without the other. You can't have a resurrection if he didn't suffer and die. And obviously the one who suffered and died, if he is the resurrection and the life, and the great I am, and the Lord of life, and the giver of all life, if he is the divine son, then death could not hold him. He had to rise again from the dead to fulfill all that was written of him and concerning him by the prophets and in the scriptures. So the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ go together. Today we're going to be looking at a passage that deals with both of those, both of those events And we're going to see what the significance and importance of those two events are for us. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, the book of Matthew chapter 20.
We're going to be looking specifically at verses 17 through 19 of Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 says this, As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way He said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and will hand Him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify Him, and on the third day He will be raised up. That is our passage for this morning. Now, I want you to, first of all, to notice that this is a promise that Jesus gave. It's actually a prophecy or prediction of the events that would very soon unfold concerning him. This is toward the end of his ministry. The timeline between this and his actual death is not very long, as you'll see in a moment. But this is one of many times and many places where Jesus predicted the things that would happen to him when he made his way up to Jerusalem. And this is not the only place that this type of prediction is recorded by Jesus. He used a number of different analogies throughout Scripture and different places in the Gospel to foretell His own death and His own resurrection. And what I want you to notice is that in the death of Christ, there is a fulfillment, not just of Old Testament prophecies concerning Him, but also a fulfillment of His very Word. He predicted His own death. He predicted His own resurrection. Therefore, His resurrection is His keeping of His promise to His people. The resurrection is His promise to us fulfilled. And in that, He also fulfilled all the promises and predictions of the Old Testament prophets concerning the Messiah. Now, I want you to notice first the occasion of this promise, the occasion of it. Verse 19 or verse 17 says, Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. And so on the way up to Jerusalem, where is He leaving from? Verse 29 gives us that detail. It says that they were leaving Jericho and a large crowd was following them. So the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, mentioned that this is Jesus on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and they were going up to Jerusalem, and Scripture uses the phrase up because Jerusalem was an ascent from almost anywhere in the land of Israel. Jerusalem sat at 2,500 feet. Jericho was near the north end of the Dead Sea at 1,000 feet below sea level, and it was a 14-mile walk. A 14-mile walk from Jericho to Jerusalem, and you went up 3,500 feet by the time you got to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem this for the very last time in his life. And he knew exactly what would befall him when he went there. And the other gospel writers, the other synoptics, Mark and Luke, they give us a few more details regarding what Jesus was doing and what he said. And I want you to listen to what Mark writes. Mark chapter 10 says this. Now, this is Mark's parallel recording of this same promise. And here's how Mark records it. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Now Mark gives a couple of other details. Mark says they were traveling with the crowd, and that Jesus was out in front. And Mark says that those who followed him, and those who believed upon him, were amazed and fearful. Why would they be amazed and fearful? Well, if you know about the timeline of Jesus' life is, by this time, this is just a few weeks prior to His death, by this time it was the worst kept secret in all of Israel that the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem wanted Jesus of Nazareth dead. They had all but published that in the Jerusalem Tribune of the day. They had plotted this, they had planned it, they had been planning it for years, they were looking for opportunities, and everybody know, knew that their intention was to kill Jesus at the first opportunity that they had. That was what they were designed to, that was what they were designing to do. Now Mark says that Jesus was walking out in front of him and those who followed him were fearful and amazed. Why were they fearful and amazed? The disciples had every reason from a human vantage point 
to be fearful of going up to Jerusalem because they knew what the religious leadership in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests, they knew what they wanted to do to Jesus. They knew what their intentions were. Everybody did. And so from a human perspective, they had every right to be fearful and they were scared. And what amazed them, Mark says they were also amazed, what amazed them was that Jesus, rather than hiding in the crowd, was out in front leading them on the way to Jerusalem. Why is that? Because Jesus himself knew exactly what he came to do, and he was going to Jerusalem to fulfill that. So rather than avoiding Jerusalem, which would have been seemingly the wise thing to do at this juncture, rather than avoiding Jerusalem or hiding in the crowd or trying to remain hidden, Jesus was out front leading the rest of them up to Jerusalem. And he was with the large crowd because at the time of the Passover in Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands of people descended on that one city for that grand annual celebration. And so there were large crowds and large groups from all over the land of Israel who were all going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus and his disciples were not just 12 lonely men on a road from Jericho to Jerusalem. They were 12 men among probably thousands of others who were also making that journey. And Jesus was right out in front. And everybody knew what the religious leadership wanted to do to him. So they were amazed and fearful. And here's what Luke writes in Luke's gospel, chapter 18. Luke says this, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. And then Luke mentions this, But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Went right over their head. They missed it. He pulled them aside from the crowd and he said, this is why we're going. This is what's going to happen. He gave them all the details. This is going to fulfill scripture. I'm going to be handed over into the hands of the, delivered over into the hands of the chief priests. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to mock me, scourge me, spit on me, mistreat me, and kill me, crucify me. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. And it went right over the heads of the disciples. And Matthew, Matthew implies that the disciples didn't catch this by what he records happened next. Look down at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine, that would be James and John, may sit one on your right and one on your left. Now that was bold, right? Did did they understand that he was going up to Jerusalem to be crucified? No, because it's almost as soon as those words fell from the lips of Jesus, the mother of James and John came up to him, and James and John were involved in this, Luke records. She came up to Jesus, and okay, now that you're done talking about all humiliation, suffering, and crucifying stuff, you all done with that? Okay, now listen. When we get up there and you establish your kingdom, can one of my sons be on your right and one of my sons be on your left? I don't care which one is which. You decide. I'll leave that up to you. You pick which one goes on your right. You pick which one goes on your left. But we would like my two sons, James and John, to have the positions of preeminence in the kingdom. He's talking about being humiliated and mocked and suffering and giving his life for his people. And what are they worried about? They are jockeying for positions of prominence in the kingdom. They didn't understand he was going up to Jerusalem to be crucified. What did they think they were on their way up to Jerusalem to do? If anything that was going to happen at Jerusalem, they were expecting a kingdom. They were not expecting a crucifixion. So it went right over their heads. Now as to the timing of this prophecy and prediction, you'll notice that the beginning of chapter 21 tells us the story of the triumphal entry. That was on Palm Sunday, five days prior to his crucifixion. So allowing for some travel time and allowing for arrest at, at, at Bethany when he raised Lazarus from the dead, allowing for some time there with, with, with some of his people, this is probably at the most a couple of weeks before his crucifixion. And he knows exactly what he came to Jerusalem to do and he knew exactly what was going to befall him once he got there. 
Now, this is not Mark, uh, Matthew's first prediction or record of Jesus' prediction of his own death and resurrection. I'm going to take you back and I'm going to read to you three other passages quickly. The first one is in Matthew chapter 12, 39 and 40. The Pharisees, you don't have to turn there, but if you can if you want. I'm not going to keep you from turning there, but you don't have to turn there. The first one is in Matthew chapter 12, 39 and 40, where Jesus was asked by the Pharisees to provide for them a sign. They said, give us a sign to, to, to show us who you are, to demonstrate this. They wanted him to do another trick, another miracle to satisfy their desire for signs. And so Matthew chapter 12 says, Jesus answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for signs. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now that's kind of enigmatic, isn't it? That's kind of veiled. Most certainly the disciples probably didn't even understand what he was talking about. Sign of Jonah the prophet, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What does it mean to be in the heart of the earth? The Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, certainly didn't understand what he was talking about at that juncture. What would be the sign of the prophet Jonah? Now you and I with... Hindsight, which is 2020, we can look back and see exactly what he was saying because we know what the sign of the prophet Jonah was. That he would be buried in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights and that he would rise again. That was the sign. That was the miracle that he would do to demonstrate that he was who he said he was. The second prediction that Matthew records is in chapter 16. And we read this, Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. The third is in Matthew chapter 17. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. And what I want you to notice is the lack of detail in those predictions in comparison to the detail that is in this prediction in chapter 20. It seems that the closer Jesus got to his death in Jerusalem, the more clear he became, the clearer he became, and the more precise and more detailed regarding the predictions of what was going to happen. So early in the life of Jesus, for instance, in John chapter 2, Jesus just told them in the temple, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. None of them had a clue what he was talking about. None of them had a clue what he was talking about. But Jesus knew that they would kill him and that he would raise himself from the dead. Jesus knew that at the beginning of his ministry, before it had ever even occurred to any of the religious leaders that that was what they should do. Before they even began to plot and to plan his execution, his murder, Jesus already knew exactly what they would do. And he alluded to that. And then as the time went on, it became clearer and clearer. He became more and more specific regarding exactly what he came to do. To the point where here, two weeks before he died, or maybe a little bit more, right in that neighborhood, two weeks before he died, he gives all of this incredible detail about what was to happen to him when he got to Jerusalem. And I want you to notice this detail. Let's begin to work our way through it. He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves on the way, and he said to them, verse 18, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Now these are specific details. This would happen at Jerusalem. You would think that the disciples would say, hold on. You're telling us that this is going to happen at Jerusalem, and yet where are we headed? To Jerusalem? Why are we headed to Jerusalem if this is going to happen to you at Jerusalem? You would think that they would have objected to that. And yet he has given to them what is going to happen to him precisely in the, in the minutest of details when they got to Jerusalem. He would, this would happen at Jerusalem, and he knew this would happen at Jerusalem. In fact, this was his intention in going to Jerusalem. As he said in John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. This was his will. This was his doing. He was a volunteer. I lay it down on my own initiative. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Why was he going to Jerusalem? Because he was the prophet. He was not just a prophet, he was the prophet. And it was not right that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. He knew that he must go there in order to die. Jesus was not a victim of the events that surrounded him. He was not caught up in the sweep of the circumstances, unable to escape it. As if he was trying to avoid death, trying to avoid crucifixion, or trying to go to avoid Jerusalem. He knew, I go to Jerusalem to die, therefore I go to Jerusalem. Because it's not right that a prophet perish outside of that city. So he went up there to do this very thing. To be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, and then to be condemned to death. Those are the rest, that's the rest of verse 18. And this is exactly what happened. The word delivered there means to be handed over, to turned over to somebody. And that, that is a perfect word to describe exactly what Judas Iscariot did to Jesus. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, they colluded together with Judas to betray Jesus. And so this is what they worked out with Judas, was an opportunity to seize Jesus under the cover of darkness when he would be away from the multitudes, when he would be most vulnerable. And in, with millions of people in Jerusalem, they needed a time and they needed a place to seize him. And they found one, a traitor in his inner circle, who would gladly sell to them that information of where Jesus would be, at what time he would be there, so that they could arrive with a crowd and seize him. Apart from the, the crowds who might start a revolt, they could seize Jesus under the cover of darkness. And all of that was a fulfillment of Scripture. For Scripture reveals that the betrayal of the Messiah by a close friend would happen. That was prophesied in the Old Testament. And the scripture predicted that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, which is the exact price that Judas got for his treachery, 30 pieces of silver. All of that happened in fulfillment of scripture. He was delivered into the hands of whom? The Romans? No, not the Romans, the chief priests, the Jews. He was delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. And who were the chief priests? There were two of them. The chief priest or the high priest that year was Caiaphas, and his father-in-law was Annas. And he was actually handed over or delivered to Annas. They took him first to Annas. And there was, there was five trials of Jesus that night. The first two were before Jewish authorities. The first one was before Annas. And Annas was not high priest that year. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was high priest that year. But Annas was the, he was the powerful one. He was the man kind of behind the curtain, as it were. The wonderful wizard who pulled all the strings and the buttons. He was the one who held the power in Jerusalem. And Caiaphas kind of did his bidding as his son-in-law. And so he was first delivered into the hands of Annas, and Annas tried him, though it wasn't an official trial. It was kind of a, a mock trial or an unofficial trial because Annas really couldn't do anything since he wasn't the official high priest that year. But he did try Jesus, and it was sort of a prelude or a, 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 a proceeding to the actual trial that night, which would later be before Caiaphas. So Annas handed him over to Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And Caiaphas brought in false witnesses who said, well, he said he would destroy the temple and they didn't quote him accurately. And finally they nailed him with the charge of blasphemy because he, being a man, made himself out to be the son of God and they knew that that was blasphemy. So they got him on blasphemy. And he confessed who he was before them and they charged him with blasphemy. And you know that mock fake trial, they tore their clothes and oh, the blasphemy, these wicked blasphemers that they were, they charged him with blasphemy and they condemned him to death. And then who did Caiaphas hand him over to? Pontius Pilate, which is in fulfillment of exactly what Jesus said. He says in verse 18 that he would be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, and they would condemn him to death, which is what they did, and then they brought him over to the Gentiles, to Pontius Pilate. So they brought him to Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate didn't think he had done anything deserving of death. 
Pontius Pilate actually tried to release him and wanted to refuse to uh, do anything to, to, to kill him. But Caiaphas and Annas put so much pressure on Pontius Pilate that he eventually conceded and turned Jesus over to be crucified. And Pontius Pilate, wanting to buy some time, sent Jesus to Herod. And Jesus was tried before Herod. He didn't say a word before Herod. Herod then sent him back to Pontius Pilate. So between the late night arrest on Thursday evening and the early morning crucifixion and scourging of Jesus, he endured five trials. Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, and then back to Pilate. And finally then he was scourged. And it wasn't the, it wasn't the Jews who carried out the crucifixion. It was the Romans who carried out the crucifixion because they were pressured or Pontius Pilate was pressured by the Jews. So the Jews masterminded the murder. The Romans were complicit and carried it out under pressure from Caiaphas and Annas and under the direction of Pontius Pilate. It was the Romans who oversaw the scourging and the mockery and the whipping and the beating. It was the Romans who oversaw the crucifixion. It was the Romans who oversaw all of the actual execution of Jesus Christ. But the Jews masterminded it, and they were in cahoots together, both of them working together. This is why in Acts chapter 2, and I think it's Acts chapter 4, uh, the apostles speak of that, how the Gentiles and the Jews were together, and all of these events and all of these players came together to do exactly what God had predestined should occur. That's exactly how the apostles described it. This is what God had planned for this to happen. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he knew exactly what would happen. He would be delivered into the hands of the Jews. They would condemn him to death, but they couldn't by law execute anybody because they were being ruled over by the Romans. They would hand him over to the Romans, and the Romans would do the dirty deed. And so Pontius, or so, so Caiaphas and Annas could in effect wash their hands with Pontius Pilate and say, it's not mine. I mean, we didn't do it. We gave it to the Romans and the Romans carried it out. And Pontius Pilate could wash his hands and say, I didn't want to do this, but they forced me to do it. I am innocent of the guilt of this man's blood. And they put him to death. And they did exactly what Jesus described. Every last detail was fulfilled just as he predicted it. Look at verse 19. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and crucify him. And they did mock him, and Matthew records the fulfillment of that prediction of them mocking him. They put a purple robe on him. They whipped him and they beat him. They wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand, and they, in feign and mockery, knelt down and said, Hail the King of the Jews, and they mocked him and, and uh, mocked his kingship and mocked his claims to deity and all of that. They mocked him, and then they scourged him. They beat him with the, with the flagellum, the Roman instrument of death, torture. They beat him, and then they handed him over to be crucified. And they hung him on a cross outside of the city of Jerusalem, and they crucified Jesus of Nazareth outside that city. Now, everything that happened here was in fulfillment, not only of what Jesus said, but listen, of all the Old Testament prophets. It was Isaiah who said he would be scourged, he would be crucified, he would be pierced. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Isaiah tells us that all of this was done for our sake. By his scourging we are healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, punished him in our stead, so that this death was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. And this death that we read about, was itself a vicarious death. It was a death that was died in the place of others. By his scourging, we are healed. So this death fulfilled Isaiah 53. It fulfilled Psalm 22, which spoke of the Messiah being thirsty, his bones being pulled out of joint, of not a, not a limb of his being broken so that he would be pierced instead. Zechariah chapter 12 describes the Messiah as being one who would be pierced for his people. So all the Old Testament prophets 
The imagery of the sacrifices and the, the feasts and the festivals, the Lamb of God, all the animal sacrifices, all of that pointed forward to somebody who would ultimately fulfill all of that. And it would be the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God was not what the Jews were expecting. They were wanting and expecting a kingdom. Uh, that, that was, in fact, what, the, what they thought was to be promised by the one who called himself the Son of Man, a kingdom. They weren't expecting, expecting a sacrificing and suffering servant. They were expecting a ruling and reigning regent. That's what they wanted. They wanted the lion of the tribe of Judah, and God gave them the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so he died on that cross in fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Zechariah 12, all of those passages that describe the death of the Messiah. Jesus, in dying for his people, not only fulfilled what he said he would do, he fulfilled everything that the Old Testament prophets said that the Messiah would do. Everything pointed to him so that that death on the cross becomes the central defining moment of human history. That event is what all of the Old Testament looked forward to and anticipated concerning the Messiah's first coming. We look back to that because it is the fulfillment of all of God's redemptive anticipation in the Old Testament, and it is all fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, a fulfillment of Scripture. He was delivered into the hands of sinners, into the chief priests and the scribes. They condemned him to death. They gave him to the Romans. The Romans mocked him, scourged him, crucified him. And on the third day, he rose again. Every time Jesus talked about this with his disciples, he never left that part out. He always mentioned that. They never got that. They sometimes heard the, the death part of that. For instance, in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus said that to Peter, and Peter said, no, no, time out. This shall not happen to you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. And Peter opposed that and corrected Jesus for his misunderstanding of what the plan and purpose of God should be for the Messiah. He heard the death part, but most of the time the disciples, uh, in fact, I don't know of any time that the disciples caught the resurrection part that this would happen to him, and then on the third day, he would rise again. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is itself also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And there are three passages. Now, when you look at the Old Testament for the resurrection, it's far less clear in the Old Testament than it was in the New Testament. You see it there in types and shadows. You see it there in implications and, and sort of hidden in the text. Not, not hidden, but not pronounced as it is in the New Testament. So, for instance, you read in, in Psalm chapter 16 that God would not allow His Holy One to undergo decay. You read in Psalm 22 that this one who would suffer would later on, after his suffering, do things that only living people could do. In Isaiah 53, this one who was with a rich man in his death, who who was scourged for us and wounded and bruised in our place, this one would himself rejoice after his suffering. So in the Old Testament, the Old Testament predicted that this Messiah would come and he would suffer. And then after describing the suffering, they would describe something that this Messiah who had suffered would do after his suffering, which indicated that he would come back to life. And so the, looking at it through hindsight, we can see exactly what it was that they were predicting. So yes, the resurrection is in the Old Testament. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, and Isaiah 53 are the key passages where the resurrection of Christ is predicted. So in the resurrection of Christ, in his crucifixion and resurrection, he fulfilled not only his promises, but also the promises of the Old Testament prophets. And it all came to pass exactly as it would come. Jesus said it would come to pass. So what happened on the third day? On the third day, Friday being the first day, Saturday being the second day, Sunday being the third day, not after three full 24-hour cycles, but on that third day after the events of the crucifixion happened, on that day, early in the morning before the sun came up, there was an earthquake, and the stone was rolled away, and the angel descended, and the Roman guard fled. When the women arrived at the tomb, the Roman guard was gone, and the tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away from the sepulcher, 
And an angel was sitting on the stone, and angels were sitting inside the tomb. And the women saw the angels, and they were informed that he who had died was risen again. And they said to them, the angel said to the angel, the angel said to the women, why are you here? He is not risen. Or he is not here. He is risen. And the women went in to tell the disciples. On that first day, between the early morning earthquake and that late that evening, Jesus appeared five separate times. Once to Mary Magdalene, once to the other women, then to an unnamed disciple in Cleopas on the road to Emmaus, and then to Peter, and then to twelve, ten apostles, two of them missing. Judas was dead and Thomas was not there. Five appearances on that first resurrection Sunday. These people who had seen him dead, watched him hang on a cross, heard him be condemned. These very people who had handled his dead body and placed it into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and rolled that stone against the entrance of that tomb, and had watched a Roman guard be positioned at that tomb, those very same people later said that they saw Jesus of Nazareth alive, presenting himself alive to them with many convincing proofs. Now this is no hallucination, and this is no game, it's no myth, it's not a joke, it's not a rumor of history, nobody stole the body, these people saw him, and some of them needed to be convinced against what they thought was the evidence because Thomas had seen him pierced and he needed to be convinced and he said, I will not believe until I see myself the wounds in his hands and in his feet and the wound in his side. And these people saw him and they were convinced because he rose again. And that is the testimony of history. That is the testimony of Scripture. That is the confident belief of all who name the name of Christ and belong to him. We believe that he did exactly what he said he would do. He went to Jerusalem, and he was delivered into the hands of the chief priest, turned over to the Romans, they crucified him, and on the third day he rose again. And then he presented himself alive to those who saw him suffer, watched him die, and knew he was dead. He presented himself alive after three days, and he walked with them for 40, and talked with them, and taught them, and appeared five other times that are recorded in Scripture after those five that I just gave to you. And he showed to them that he was, in fact, alive. Now, what are the implications of this for you and I? If Jesus said he was going to go to Jerusalem and die and rise again, and he went to Jerusalem and he died and he rose again, he fulfilled not only his word, but also the word and the testimony of all the Old Testament prophets concerning him. That is why Luke says, and Jesus said to the, road, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, this is what the Scripture said was going to happen to the Christ. And then he walked them through the Old Testament to show them that the death and the burial and the resurrection was all according to Scripture. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again according to the Scriptures. This is why we believe what we believe, is because the Scripture has revealed it, and Scripture promised it, and Christ fulfilled it. And what are the implications of this if He has kept His Word? Well, the implications of this for you, if you are an unbeliever, are quite different than the implications of this for those who are believers. So let me deal first of all with you if you happen to be an unbeliever. If you have never been born again, you have never repented of your sin and trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, that here are the implications of the resurrection for you. It means that there is most certainly a judgment to come for you. There is a judgment to come. This is what Paul said in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. When he says this, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world and he has offered proof of this coming judgment by raising the judge from the dead. Who is the judge? 
It's Jesus Christ. And He is risen from the dead. That is God's proof that there is a judgment to come. Now listen. If you have never violated God's law, if you have never sinned and if you are perfect, then you need not fear the judgment to come. You have nothing to fear. You do not need to fear any condemnation. You do not need to fear any judgment from God. You do not, in fact, even need a Savior. And if you are perfect, you can just tune out everything that I'm about to say because none of this applies to you. But I would be willing to bet my life and the life of my entire family and everybody sitting here that you, in fact, are not perfect and that you do, in fact, need a Savior. And I will prove it to you. If you have violated God's law at any time and in any way, you are guilty before Him. So if you have ever told a lie, you are a liar. And Scripture promises that all liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire. If you have ever stolen anything, you are a thief. And no thief, and no idolater, and no blasphemer, and no fornicator, and no homosexual, and no effeminate, and no gossip, and no slander, and none of those people shall ever have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. That is His promise. If you've ever taken God's name in vain, that makes you a blasphemer. And Jesus said you don't even have to commit the act of adultery just to look <coughs> at someone of the opposite sex with lust in your heart makes you an adulterer. To hate somebody makes you a murderer because God sees not just the deeds that you do, but He sees the thoughts and intentions of the heart and of the mind. And He treats them as culpability before Him. So what would that make you and I on the Day of Judgment? That would make us guilty. And we are guilty. And we deserve God's wrath. And because God is good, He will not leave any sin unpunished. That is His promise. And so we are guilty before Him. We stand condemned. Scripture says we are condemned already. We deserve His wrath. His frown is against us. We are, Scripture says, children of wrath, even as the rest. We are under the condemnation of the law and the curse of the law. And God is holy and righteous and just. And He should punish guilty sinners because that is what holy and righteous judges do. They punish the sin and the crimes of the people who are brought before them. That's what we deserve. Now, here's the good news. That God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world, and He was born of a virgin, and He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never violated any of God's commands because He was the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God who came into this world to bear the sin of people who deserve God's wrath. And that sinless, spotless one gave Himself to die on a cross in the place of sinners so that He might offer you forgiveness. He might offer you a clean conscience. He might offer you eternal life if you will come to Him on His terms. We don't come to God on our terms. We come to God on His terms. He is the offended one. We are the ones who need to be reconciled to Him. So He determines what those terms are. And those terms are repentance and faith. Repentance means that I agree with God that I am not a good person, that I deserve His wrath, that I deserve His judgment, that I deserve hell because I am a liar and I am a blasphemer and I am a a thief and I am an adulterer at heart and a murderer at heart and I violated all of God's ten, ten Commandments and many more of His commandments in spirit and in letter and in every way, every day from the day of my birth until this present day. I've never loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength as the law demands. And so I deserve His wrath, but I admit that I deserve that wrath and then I believe upon what Christ has done and I believe the testimony of Scripture and these are the terms, repentance and faith. Faith is believing what Scripture says about you and about what Christ did and what His death means. That righteous one was punished in our place. He died in our stead. His scourging heals us. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He bore in His own body on the cross our sin, First Peter says. 
so that his death becomes our death because I believe in him. And so my confidence, our confidence as Christians is that we trust Christ so much that if he fails, then we perish. So we abandon all of our attempts at our own self-righteousness. We abandon all attempts at earning heaven by our own merits or our keeping the Ten Commandments or doing good deeds or being a good person or being the right kind of person because we recognize that we are not good people. We deserve wrath and we come and we believe upon the one whom God sent as a propitiation, a sacrifice, a suffering and dying lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And here is God's promise to you that if you repent of your sin, and you trust in Jesus Christ, He will give you eternal life. Jesus promised in John 6, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. He will embrace you. He will accept you if you come to Him as a penitent sinner and you trust and you want to trust and you cry out to God for salvation, repentance, faith, eternal life. If you come to Him for salvation, He will receive you and He will fulfill His promise to you. He will give you eternal life. He will give you a new heart, new affections, new desires. He will grant you peace with God. You can be reconciled today through the death of His Son. If you have never trusted Christ for salvation, I beg of you on behalf of God, be reconciled to Him today while you still can, while there is still time. Now for those of us who are Christians, the resurrection has entirely different implications. Because we have embraced all of that, that Christ died in our place, that He rose again in our stead, because we have embraced all of that, we have eternal life and our confidence is that looking forward to the future, that on the last day, He will fulfill His word yet again, that He will say the word and He will speak and all who belong to Him will rise again in new and everlasting and glorified bodies and will join Him and sit at His right hand in the kingdom and we will experience eternal joy. So Christ will either be on the final day your Savior or your judge. All men will stand before Him. He will be your Savior or your judge. If you will not bow the knee and repent and embrace Him as your Savior, then you will stand before Him as your judge. I can say that with utmost certainty. But if you come to Him, He will welcome you and He will grant you eternal life. That is His promise. These are weighty things. These are glorious things. These are true things. The glorious Son of Man went to Jerusalem where He was delivered into the hands of the chief priests. They gave Him to the Romans. The Romans mocked him, scourged him, crucified him, and on the third day he rose again. This was the plan and purpose of the great triune God from all eternity past to glorify his great name in saving sinners who will come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that today. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What confidence that gives us in your ability to save, your willingness to save, and the fact that our faith in Jesus Christ is a well-placed and well-warranted trust. We rejoice in the salvation that we have, and it is our desire that any who do not know you, who are here today, that they may embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers, that they may embrace it by faith and receive new hearts and be born again. May you be pleased and glorified to draw sinners to yourself, to encourage and strengthen the hearts of those who are yours, in the salvation that we have been granted. Be honored today. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ in His great name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.